This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. I always tell people you should go home and learn your your family's recipes. So whether or not you even publish, because now these recipes are my link to my past. And I remember when my parents first taught me some of the recipes in the book, and when then I went back to New York to like test the recipe. And when I was able to replicate exactly the dish that I remembered as a child, it was such a feeling of empowerment and it was such a charge. The Walk. If you want to know more about this versatile kitchen must, one of the most important go-to experts is Grace Young, otherwise known as the stir-fry guru. She was the photo editor of 40 of Time Live series cookbooks and has won five IACP awards and a James Beard Award. Her newest video addresses walk anxiety. And one of her main missions? To demystify the art of stir-frying. Coming up, why the amount of rice you have in your kitchen could matter more than you think. Why the patina of the wok is so important. And how you prepare a brand new wok for use. Why her first book, The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen, proved to be far more than a cookbook. And her legacy recipe for sandpot stir-fried chicken rice. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Grace Young, it is such a joy to have you here, but I'm going to change your name. I'm changing it to Grace Forever Young. Oh, <laughs> I haven't I like seen that. you in a while, and you look fantastic. Thank you. But you've been in the business for a very, very long time. You gifted me just a few moments ago with the most beautiful gift, a book of yours, a book that I believe is in its 13th or 18th printing? 13th, 13th. <laughs> yes, okay. thank you. But it will be in its 18th. Thank you. Uh, and it's called The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen. Classic Family Recipes for Celebration and Healing. And I'm looking at this beautiful book with three magnificent women on the cover. Who are they? Well, it's a photograph of my mother, my grandmother, and myself. The photographer for the book, Alan Richardson, came to my family's home in San Francisco and shot my parents' Chinese New Year celebration. Mm. And at the very end of this long photo shoot day, he turned to me and he said, is there any other shot that you want? And I said, you know, we've never done, a f we don't have a photograph of the three generations. Mm. So it was not intended for the cookbook at all. It was just something that I wanted for myself. And if I had known that it was going to be for the cookbook, I would not be wearing the hideous white turtleneck. My mother and my grandmother, everyone points this out to me, oh. look like movie stars, movie stars or the empress, a dowager of China. Totally. But I am wearing this white, ugly, gap turtleneck. I don't know where my mind was at and a red jacket. And uh, 
There was a reviewer in the San Francisco Chronicle Examiner who said, you know, the, the two Chinese women in this photograph look so magnificent and wise, and you can tell Young is in search of herself. <laughs> Which, I mean, at the time I was. So I guess wow. it's a very – and no one has makeup on. But with me, you can tell that I don't have makeup. But my, my mother and my grandmother are just stunning. They're they were magnificent, gorgeous. magnificent women. Yeah, Grace, what I see is an innocent, loving young woman in you. I don't know how old you are here at all, but it also represents that you are this new generation. You are American. Exactly. You're wearing you know, non-Chinese exactly. clothes. But I just see three magnificent women. Thank and you. what a wonderful – in fact, did you ever blow this up and have it like portrait size and maybe print it on silk? Well, so you have a Chinese ancestor painting. <laughs> no, but, you know, when the book came out, they blew up the book jacket for promotion. Mm. And so I have one of those posters in my office. But it's a, it is a very, very powerful photograph. And I love the concept of your show, One Woman Kitchen. So yesterday, the – the latest printing had just arrived, and as I was passing the box, I looked down and I saw the photograph of the three of us, mm. and it is a powerful shot of three women, three different generations, and I thought, I really should bring this to you. I, I'm so thrilled to have it. As a matter of fact, uh, just a few moments ago, you didn't notice, but I started sneaking reading it. Oh. And uh, even though this was not the way I intended to begin, I, I'd like to start this way. I just read a paragraph in your first chapter, called The Meaning of Rice. Right. And quickly, I skimmed it. And I, I'd like you to share this story, because it almost brought tears to my eyes, when your mother noticed the canister of rice on your counter. Right. When my I, I was born and raised in San Francisco, grew up in a very traditional Chinese family when it came to cooking. And my parents always had a 100-pound sack of rice. <laughs> And my mother just passed away last year, and mm. even living alone in San Francisco with caregivers, she always had a 25-pound sack of rice. Oh, my goodness. But when they first came to New York to visit me after I'd moved here, I wasn't even aware of it, but my mother comes into the kitchen. I was not aware of the fact that I had bought like a three-pound or one-pound little pouch of rice from the supermarket and I put it into this jar and my mother stops in her tracks as if she has just seen a rat in the kitchen or something. <laughs> and her her eyes just got so big and she said where's the rice like what is that it, it, it to her it looked like a little container of cornstarch you know and mm. And for the Chinese, rice is a symbol of prosperity and wellness mm. in your life. And to see me with this jar that probably had like six cups of rice or eight cups of rice. But as a single woman, I had already stopped being Chinese. You know, mm. I was living my New York life. I wasn't cooking Chinese food every night. I didn't know how to cook Chinese food every night. Uh -huh. I was having yogurt and salad. And <laughs> and when my mother heard these things, you could just see that she thought that I was committing suicide, food suicide. <laughs> yeah, no, the alarm, you know, it was as if, you know, she had found out that, you know, I was a drug addict. So, oh, um, my. The visuals, really, to, to use a very over. Use yeah. word now, the optics for her yes. of seeing 
this pound of rice next to the flour and sugar. So, you know, all of these are little Rorschachs, right, of, of bigger stories. Yes. What you're wearing on the cover, the, exactly. you know, what this rice looked like or represented to her. Uh, so interesting. But but let's let's start at the beginning then of your amazing career. You know what? Let's go back to your kitchen in San Francisco. So you lived with your parents, but was also your grandmother, was she part of? Um, um, only in, uh, not when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. After I moved to New York um, and after my grandfather passed away, then she moved in with my parents. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what was uh, dinner like in, in your home? Did you eat traditional Chinese food? Totally everything that my parents had eaten in China. It was absolutely replicated. And it was possible because in San Francisco, all Chinese ingredients were available. Yes. In fact, you probably had more Chinese ingredients available in San Francisco than you could have found in China in those days because China was exporting everything out for profit. I've met people, Chinese Americans who were brought up in New Mexico or Texas or Oklahoma, and they had to like travel great distances to get Chinese ingredients. But my parents were able to get everything. And for them... Chinese food was a way of keeping our culture alive as immigrants. Certainly. And yeah. when did they come and, and what was the, the reason? So my father is actually an American citizen. He was born in San Francisco's Chinatown mm-hmm. at home. Wow. In 1914 <laughs> and brought back to China as an infant and then brought back to America by mm. boat. Mm. And then again, as a young child, There were two or three trips, and then apparently when he was seven, they went back to Canton and stayed. Canton now is called Guangzhou. And he stayed until 1931. Mm -hmm. And then my grandfather, my father, and my uncle, because it was the Depression and life in China was very, very difficult, realized that it would be better in America. So they came back. So my father is, in fact, American citizen but raised in China for the most part. And my mother is born in Hong Kong, raised in Shanghai, and came as an airline stewardess in 19, probably she came in 47 or 48, met my father, (laughs) and made several trips to America. And in 1949, she flew in in October. And the rumor was that when the plane flew back to China, it might not come out again. So the gamble was there were six airline stewardesses. Were they going to stay in America or were they going to go back to China? Mm. Three stayed and three flew home. And my mother stayed and married my father. Oh, how wonderful. I know. This is just an amazing story. And do you have brothers and sisters? I have an older brother, Mm -hmm. yes. So who would cook at home? Generally, it was my mother and father, but my mother probably did a little bit more. But they did it together. They did it together, yes. They were obsessed with food and good food. Uh And they bought the ingredients every day in Chinatown. Every day. Every day. This is a very European model for shopping and cooking. Exactly. But was it also utilitarian? You had a tiny refrigerator or just the way things were? No, regular refrigerator. Mm -hmm. But they were fanatics about freshness. And they understood what we all speak about today, that produce that's in season has the most flavor, has the Mm. most value, has the most nutrition. And my father was a liquor salesman, and the majority of his accounts were in Chinatown. So he was always swinging through Chinatown 
to see his um, customers. And so he would spot, you know, the freshest fish or that they had baby hearts of bok choy that uh, the produce man had suddenly put out. And so that's why he always had his radar up for the best food. I'm just sitting here with my mouth open. I'm so happy hearing this beautiful story. Do you think your parents were unusual or was this part of – do you think many Chinese families kind of worshipped freshness and vegetables? No, your parents were the original foodies. They were the original (laughs) foodies. And that's why I wrote Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen because all my uncles and aunties by that point, which was in the 1990s, were celebrating Chinese New Year's in restaurants. And my parents were the only ones that made the traditional meal and decorated the home as if they were in China. They did everything else as Americans. You know, they were very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. My mother loved musicals. She would go to the theater. (laughs) She liked going to a European restaurant occasionally. But in terms of eating every night, you know, on a daily basis, they really adhered to traditional Cantonese cooking. And so I thought to myself, I should really record the Chinese New Year's meal because they do it so uniquely. So I asked Alan Richardson, who's a wonderful photographer, incredible photographer, to come home with me. Would he be willing to just photograph it? So I had no cookbook in mind. Hmm. I just said, I just want to record this. I don't want snapshots. I want really beautiful photographs because I know someday my parents won't be able to make this meal. So Alan came with me and he photographed my parents for the entire day, cooking and the finished dishes, and then sitting down for this Chinese New Year's meal. And then at the end of this, he said, do you know how to make these dishes? (laughs) And I said, no, I don't. I said, you know, it's like going home for Thanksgiving. Your mom makes a Thanksgiving meal. right? And so I said, I know some of them, but I've never. So I, I just started thinking about it. And I thought, and I asked my cousins and no one knew their parents' recipes. Mm. So I thought, I'm the only one who works in a test kitchen. I know how to record recipes. I should do this as a gift to my family, to record the recipes and to write them up as a cookbook. And so at first, it was just going to be the specialty dishes. And then I realized that it should be the everyday comfort foods that I love the most. And then the third section are the classic Cantonese herbal soups that keep mm-hmm. you your yin-yang um, balance in your body. Um, so I thought my mission in doing this was to just get all the recipes down. But in recording the coming home to cook with my parents, my parents opened up about their lives in China. Oh. And they had never been very expressive. They were not secretive, but when you'd ask them about life in China, they were just a little dismissive or I I don't think they wanted to talk about the past. They had started this new life in America and they weren't used to expressing their feelings, partially because of their generation. But in cooking with them, unexpectedly, my mother would talk about what it was like making the New Year's cake in China. Not that she knew how to make it in China because they had servants, but I would, we were using packaged rice flour and she said, oh no, no, no. You know, in China, the servants would take the raw rice grains and grind it to Mm. make your own flour. Or one day I was talking with my father and he suddenly said that he had owned a diner on Grant Avenue 
in the 1940s. I was like, Baba, you've never talked about that before. Oh, yeah. I I owned a restaurant for two or three years. We served Chinese-American food. You know, I, I served pork chops and American. I, I could serve scrambled eggs or sunny-side-up eggs in the morning. And at lunchtime, we made beef stew. I can't remember what else. But they also made a few Chinese dishes. And then in in doing all of this, not only did I learn these recipes and these stories, and I start recording down the stories and realize that the stories were in some ways more important than the recipes, Mm. that I was being handed Mm. my family's legacy through food. But then my parents dug up these really old photographs, and we went to my uncles and aunts, and they dug up old photographs. So the book has a handful of photographs from my parents from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that are just incredible. So food really was the key to unlock so much of your parents' past. And I am so eager to talk more to you about how food has unlocked who you have become, right? Because it's decades that you're in this industry and that you wear many hats, but you are also preserving a legacy and the legacy of the walk. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to you more about it. Here's a cooking tip to share. It's for one of the healthiest and most delicious salad dressings I know. It's often served at Japanese restaurants, and I kind of figured out how to make it. It's made from carrots, is extremely refreshing, and uses very little oil. Here's the recipe. One half cup of diced fresh carrots, one third cup orange juice, two tablespoons of sugar, one tablespoon of chopped onion, four teaspoons of rice vinegar, a teaspoon of finely chopped fresh ginger, and only one tablespoon of olive oil. Combine all in a food processor and process until very smooth. I serve it over shaved cabbage and watercress, and I even dip strawberries in it. It's fabulous. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Now sunrise, your kisses light my- the wisdom of the Chinese kitchen classic family recipes for celebration and healing. I say to people, this is Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen is the book dearest to me because all the relatives who taught me their recipes and their stories have either passed away or are no longer cooking. I still have uncles and aunties alive on my mom's side who are very, very uh, vibrant and healthy and they're cooking, but on my father's side, Almost all those relatives have passed away. And so this is more than a cookbook. This is a memory book. And mm. it's a daughter's tribute to her family's way of cooking. Yeah. So beautiful. And I think that this is actually something that maybe every daughter can think about, whether they publish it you know, with a regular publisher or even self-publish, to just really be mindful of that this is a way to preserve you know, a piece of ourselves. I always tell people you should go home and learn your your family's recipes. So whether or not you even publish, because now 
these recipes are my link to my past. And I remember when my parents first taught me some of the recipes in the book, and when then I went back to New York to like test the recipe. And when I was able to replicate exactly the dish that I remembered as a child, it was such a feeling of empowerment and it was such a charge. But the most remarkable part of this whole story is I thought I was recording these recipes for my generation and future generations. But as my mother aged, in 2003, she had a stroke. Hmm. And I got the call in New York, and I flew back to San Francisco immediately, and she wasn't able to speak. She had the ability to use her hands, to brush her hair, and to Hmm. eat. But every time they brought the food in, I saw her just pushing that ghastly looking meatloaf or macaroni and cheese she she would pick up the spoon and start to like pick up the food and then just put the utensil back down again Mm. and I wasn't able to speak to my mom and after one day being with her I suddenly thought I need to cook her something so I went back to her house and one of the recipes my parents taught me is this classic Cantonese recipe where you stir fry chicken with shiitake mushrooms and a little ginger. And it's lightly seasoned with just some soy sauce and rice wine. You cook up a pot of rice. And before the rice is completely cooked and before the stir fry is completely cooked, you put the stir fry when it's sort of three quarters cooked on top of the rice and lit it. And the heat from the rice finishes the stir fry. Mm. And it's so gentle that the chicken is never overcooked. So it remains juicy and succulent. (laughs) And then the juices from this wonderful stir fry seep into the rice. And I forgot to say that the mushrooms that you use are dried shiitake mushrooms. Mm -hmm. So after you stir fry this chicken and shiitake and ginger mixture, you swirl in a little of that shiitake mushroom soaking liquid. Mm. So anyway, I make a tiny pot of this and I bring it back to the hospital. And as I walk into the room, just the aroma, my mother's face, she looks up and she knows that aroma. And I brought her the pot and I spooned it out and she ate the entire thing. Mm. And I was so fascinated that even though she had this stroke, her food memory, her sensory memory was intact. I would love to contact a medical researcher to do a study with patients who have had strokes or who have Alzheimer's or dementia and to cook them a dish from their past and to see whether or not they connect. Because I saw it with my mother that day and she ate the entire thing. And then from that point on in the last years, every time I went home to San Francisco, I would every year I made my mother's traditional Chinese New Year's menu. Mm. I would open up the chapter from Chinese New Year's. It's in this book, the make, whole thing. Wonderful. Make all of her dishes. Wow. Or I would make specialty items that she was known for. And as her dementia worsened, I always saw that she recognized it, she relished it, she ate the whole thing. And so I gave the book back to her. Mm. 
She taught me her recipes, but in the end, I was able to give them back to her. Grace, this is beautiful indeed, and you are completely onto something. There's a whole new field called neurogastronomy. Really? Which deals with a lot of the beauty of what you were just talking about. And it turns out that the olfactory hub in our brain, you know, which is where yes. all of the sensory and the smells arise to, is actually very close to the area in the brain where memory is stored. So this is so fascinating. Coming up, you'll hear more about Grace's books and what it means to be a walk therapist. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by a road Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosannegold.com. Grace, the Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen was your first book? Yes. But you've written others. Yes. My second book is The Breath of a Walk, and my last, the last book I wrote is Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all wonderful, and I know you've won many awards, James Beard Awards and IACP Awards, and you're very, very respected. And I just had the joy, I think I watched it already three different times, of seeing your video that you just did called The Walk Therapist. It's so funny. I learned so much about uh, cooking in a walk. I realized that I must have thrown mine away a long time ago thinking that it was not usable anymore. And I found out today that that was a big mistake because there's something called walk patina and even the scratches tell stories. And there's a whole culture around walk cooking. And that's really what you're all about. I think that's the legacy that you want to leave. So tell us a little bit more about the video and, and, and your life as a walk therapist. So about three years ago, I started making videos with this super talented filmmaker, Harrison Jeffs. We've done four videos. This is the latest. And it's just the two of us. There's no production company. Whatever Harrison doesn't do, I do. There is a Casey Means for this uh, video that we just shot who recorded the narration, my voiceover. But otherwise, everything is Harrison and me. And I had this idea for doing this video, and it's based on my real experiences as, quote, a walk therapist. It's a hidden life. Nobody's ever – I've never <laughs> talked about this with anyone before. But when Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen came out – I started getting mail from readers, and they would say, I've just bought a wok, and I'm afraid to season it. Or I, I, season, I finally got up the courage to season my wok, but I know that I did something wrong. And when smartphones came out and people were able to send me photographs, they would send me photographs and say, what do you think of this? Should I start all over again? Should I buy a new wok? Everyone assumes that they've made a mistake. And so... For years, I've been like answering these questions. Most of the time, my husband comes into my office and he'll say, you're still on the computer? <laughs> Why are you still on the computer? And I have so many questions I have to answer from these readers, right? So inevitably, I'm up late at night answering these questions. For many years, I've been thinking, I really should tell this story of my secret life as a walk therapist. And at first, I answered the questions really straight. You know, why, you know, have I done it correctly? Uh, what should I do now? Do I need to start over? 
Why are there scratches? Should I switch from a metal spatula to a wood spatula? And I would just give the straight answer. But I can't remember at one point I switched and I would give them sound advice. But I found myself actually saying, don't get so stuck in the look of your walk. You know, just... You know, we all have good days and bad days. You know, they would they would write to me, I made a sweet and sour chicken and I had a gorgeous patina in my walk. It was black and ebony. And now I made this sweet and sour chicken and there's a little spot on my walk and how can I get it to be black again? Or I stir fried uh, beef and broccoli and I see some scratches on the walk. How can I get rid of those, those scratches? Those, should I switch to a wooden spatula? So I would say, you know, in life, stuff happens, (laughs) right? You have good days and bad days for your hair. It's the same thing with your walk. Just don't get so stuck on the look and just keep on walking. (laughs) And, and, And the more you walk, you know, your patina will return. Sometimes it comes and it goes. And it, sometimes it looks fabulous after you've been deep fat frying or you've been cooking bacon or you've just done um, a lot of stir frying. And then sometimes you've used your walk to, you know, poach a fish and that water kind of dries out the patina. But don't a, – a walk is very forgiving and it can always come back to life. And so as I was – giving them this advice about sort of relaxing into it, I realized that I was, in fact, a therapist, right? This is so great. (laughs) This is so great. Uh, Because I think it's really important that we understand, and really until I saw the video, I did not know this, that uh, a walk should, in fact, have a patina and have all of the coloration and whatever, that this was a good thing. And it shouldn't be, you know, super bright and shiny like you would have a normal pot or a a saucepan or frying pan. I should interrupt you and just say, there are so many walks out there these days. We should establish what kind of walk I'm talking about. Yes, please. And so the the walk that people should be using is a carbon steel walk. Definitely not nonstick because it's horrible for stir frying, not suited for stir frying. But you can buy stainless steel, anodized aluminum, enamel walks, cast iron walks. And so the best walk for stir frying and for Chinese cooking is a carbon steel walk, and I recommend a flat bottom carbon steel 14 inch walk. And so with a carbon steel walk, for sure, you need to season it, and then you need to keep on cooking with it to create a patina. And that patina becomes what I call ancient nonstick cookware. Because like (laughs) a cast iron skillet, the more you cook with it, the more it acquires this nonstick surface. So you require less and less oil each time you cook with it. Right. So this is one of the few times, and you're so right with cast iron, but this is one of the few times that the cooking vessel itself almost becomes an ingredient in the dish right? and certainly brings a beautiful culture. I mean, there's real poetry to this. But what do you mean when you say that a wok needs to be seasoned? I think a lot of people have heard this expression and may not know exactly what that is. Exactly. So when you buy a brand new wok, There is always factory oil on it. It's not detectable. When you look at the walk and when you touch the walk, you may not realize it. But they have to put factory oil on the walk so that from the time it leaves the factory 
to the warehouse at Sur La Tabla or Williams-Sonoma, it doesn't get rusty. And then from the time you buy it from the store and then bring it home, it could also get rusty if it didn't have this factory seal on it. Uh. I should say, by the way, that my favorite source for buying a wok mm-hmm. is the wok shop in San Francisco's Chinatown. Mm. Um, and they have an online source, wokshop.com. Thank you. They've been in business for nearly 50 years. Mm. So I would not go to any of those department stores or uh, <laughs> cooking stores to buy a wok. But then, so when you buy a wok from what whatever source you buy your wok from, when you get it home, you have to remove that factory oil. So it's very important to use liquid dishwashing soap and a scouring pad. I use a stainless steel scouring pad and really scour the inside and outside to mm. remove as much of the oil as possible. But you're bound to have missed a spot. So I always say open up the windows, turn on your exhaust fan, and then after you've washed it several times, rinsed it in hot water, then you dry it on the stove. Mm -hmm. And the moment there's heat, there is bound to be a little bit of that factory oil aroma Mm -hmm. or smell that comes out. Wow. So once the pan is dry, then you can swirl in one or two, generally two tablespoons of peanut oil or any high smoking point oil like grapeseed, avocado, rice bran, safflower. And then I add one bunch of scallions that have been cut into two inch pieces and a half a cup of sliced ginger. You don't have to peel the ginger. Then you reduce the heat to medium and stir fry for about 20 to 30 minutes. And as you're stir frying it, you're taking the scallion and ginger mixture and it begins to soften the more you cook with it Mm -hmm. and smearing it along the entire Mm -hmm. interior of the wok. And what's really happening is the heat is opening the pores of the metal and the oil and scallion and ginger mixture is coating the pores of the metal and sealing it to prevent rust from forming in the future. And you're actually... What they, what it's, what's happening is the polymerization of the oil. So the oil is hardening into the metal with the heat. And then after you cook with this mixture for 30 minutes, Tain Chan, the owner of the wok shop says, you need to do this because it's important wok bonding time. (laughs) (laughs) Then you remove the mixture, never eat it because it literally takes away the metallic taste of the metal. And then you wash it in hot water as you would a cast iron skillet. I place it on the stove and heat it on low heat for one or two minutes until all the water is evaporated. And that is a seasoned wok. And then from that point on, you can cook with it, stir fry, pan fry, you can braise, steam, boil, poach, smoke, deep fat fry. People think of the wok as a stir fry pan, but it's the most versatile cooking pan in the entire world. But each time you're doing an oil cooking method, such as pan frying, stir frying, deep fat frying, you are enhancing that patina. And so it's building up layers and layers like a painting. And the Chinese say that the older the wok, the better tasting the food. And Paula Wolfert used to always say about clay pots that an old tagine has food memory, and so Mm. the food tastes better. It's exactly the same way with a wok. The thing that is very unusual about cooking with carbon steel is that the moment you heat it, 
A brand new carbon steel pan looks like it's a stainless steel pan. It's not stainless steel, but it's silver and shiny. The moment you heat it as you start to season the pan, sometimes it turns yellow, sometimes it turns blue on the bottom, sometimes it goes splotchy, sometimes it's dark black, sometimes nothing happens. So every walk is just like us. We're all different, right? You're, everyone is unique. Like three children can be raised in the same household with the same parents, eat the same food, same environment, but they have three different personalities. So it's the same thing with walks. Well, that first coloring of the walk gets people nervous. If it goes black, if it goes yellow, if it goes kind of a copper tone, everyone gets nervous because we've never cooked with cookware that changes. Stainless steel, anodized aluminum, nonstick always looks the same before you cook with it and after you finish cooking your dish. So this makes people very nervous and it creates what I call walk anxiety. (laughs) And for the first six to nine months you're cooking with a walk, it looks like you've ruined the pan. And that's why everyone is really anxious to throw it away, contact me, get reassurance. What do I need to do to fix it? But you don't need to fix it. All you need to do is to keep walking. I love this, Grace. How do people get in touch with you? Most people find me through my website, graceyoung.com. Wonderful. But I've done an online class through Blueprint, and so I get questions there. Sometimes people reach me on Instagram, where I'm known as Stir Fry Guru. (laughs) That makes sense. Sometimes people tweet me, where I'm Stir Fry Grace. And I have a group on Facebook called Walk Wednesdays that's been cooking their way through my books. And there people post lots of questions about their walk shame, walk envy, uh, walk (laughs) neuroses. So um, I'm a walkiatrist in many ways. This is is too, too divine. I can't wait to get a new walk uh, so I can make it look old and and, uh, get reacquainted with it. Because, you know, for a very short time or long time, stir fries were like the rage. I'm thinking like maybe 20, 25 years ago, and you don't really hear about it so much anymore. But I think because of you and this new video, and may I say that the... It's called The Walk Therapist or yes. just Walk Therapist. Honestly, Grace, I think it should go and may go viral. It is fantastic. <laughs> and speaking of stir frying, you brought a legacy recipe today. Tell us a little bit about what your legacy recipe would be. So we've actually talked about it already a little bit because that's the recipe that I made for my mom ah, okay. when she was when she had her stroke. And when I first started going home to cook with my parents, to do the research for the wisdom of the Chinese kitchen, I asked my parents for all these different comfort foods that I remembered from my childhood. And when we were completely done, I had learned everything that I wanted. My mother and father said, don't you want to know how to make the stir-fried chicken dish on rice, sandpot chicken rice? And I said, I don't know that dish. And for some reason, they had never cooked it for me. Hmm. Curious. And they were like, we never cook this? And I said, no. And so they taught. So this is the last recipe they taught me for the book. Mm. And every recipe was recipes I asked them for. And this is the one where they were, they had finally gotten into the groove. And they were like, this is a must. This is a Cantonese classic. And when I ate this dish, it was so amazing. It's mind-blowing. 
because it's so clever. It's so fuel efficient, right? Mm, yes. That you let the the heat of the rice finish cooking the stir fry. And originally it's cooked in a sand pot, but I have the instructions for cooking it in like a stainless steel saucepan. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it represents so much to me. It's about my mother. It reminds me of my parents handing their their culinary legacy to me through wisdom of the Chinese kitchen. Mm. And so, um, and it's simply one of the most delicious recipes you'll ever make. Grace, thank you. And a question I always ask is, what does one woman kitchen mean to you? But I believe you've answered that this entire show. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Grace, for being here with me. And thanks to all of you for walking with me and Grace in my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.